There's something absent in chapter 9 that is conspicuous. I don't know if you caught it or not. It is conspicuous by its absence. And what is conspicuous by its absence is the obvious hand of the Lord. If you look through this chapter, you will notice that God does not speak at any point in chapter 9. Something that is unique. If you go back from the time that Israel has crossed the Jordan, from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 8, every chapter you will find God speaking, God directing, God guiding. It's really remarkable that that's the way it is here, because after all, we have just come off the covenant renewal ceremony in Joshua chapter 8. At the end of that chapter... uh, Israel renewed the covenant with God. And and what we might think would happen now is that now more than ever before, there would be an intensification in God's relationship to Israel. There would be uh, greater guidance, more speaking, all the tokens of this covenant renewal relationship might emerge. Uh, But really what you have here in chapter 9 is, in a sense, God fading into the backdrop. And now, the nations come forward, and Israel, after a significant victory streak, begins to look pitiful again. That's what goes on in chapter 9, as God takes his hand off of his church. The church becomes very pitiful and self-destructs. And that's what we want to look at this morning. And first of all, as we work our way through the substance of chapter 9, I want us to notice, first of all, that the nations hate God and His church. The nations hate God and His church. And you see that in verses 1 and 2 when it says that all of the kings came together. And this is a really impressive confederacy if you think about it. There are six nations listed here in verse 1. And not simply are there nations listed But their uh, place of origin are listed as well. You have kings from beyond the Jordan. You have kings from the hill country, the lowland, the coast of the great sea. You see, the combination of the number of nations and the places from which they are from uh, give us a picture that the entire region now is in conflict with Israel. It says they banded together to fight Now, I want you to think about that picture and contrast it back to what we have seen of the nation so far in the book of Joshua. In chapter 2, we have the testimony of Rahab about the people of Jericho when she said, when we heard of it, that is all of God's great exploits. What did they do? It says their hearts melted and there was no courage in them anymore. You go to chapter 5 after the Jordan River crossing and what does the Word of God say? That It came about that all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed and their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. The very same nations that were spoken about in chapter 5 are the very same nations now in Joshua 9 who are bonding together in a league to defeat Israel. Their hearts are no longer melted. The spirit has not left them. They are emboldened. They are brazen. They are gathering together now in league against the Lord and his church. And so the natural question to ask is why? 
And that answer is found at the end of verse 1 of chapter 9, where it says, they heard of it. They heard of it. And the natural question to ask is, what did they hear of? And some commentators have said, well, it could be that they heard of Israel renewing the covenant at Shechem. That's possible grammatically because chapter 9 begins with the word and, as if it's continuing the narrative over from chapter 8 and the record of covenant renewal. But I believe it's more likely that what they heard of was the victory at Jericho and the victory at Ai. Look at verse 3. It says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard. So you have this contrast between what Gibeon does when they hear, and I believe the contrast is between what Gibeon does when they hear and what the nations do when they hear. See, when Gibeon heard of the great exploits of the Lord at Jericho and Ai, they acted by deception. We'll come back to that in a moment. But, but here the nations, when they hear of the victories of the Lord, when they hear of the manifestation of divine power, when they hear of the might of the Lord, when they hear that the walls of Jericho came crumbling down without any battering ram, without any use of weaponry, it was simply by a supernatural act of the Lord, they turned against God. They hated God because of his power, because of his works. Now that's very interesting here, because the nations now are not turning against the Lord in ignorance. They are not turning against the Lord because they've not heard of his power. They're not turning against the Lord because they don't know who he is. They are not turning against his church because they don't know who this band of thugs is that's burning down cities in the land of Canaan. They know all kinds of things about God and his people. They know that God has delivered these people from Egypt who are once slaves. They know that God has led them across the Red Sea. They know that God has led these people through the wilderness. They know that God has led them across the Jordan. They know about the victories at Jericho. They know about the victory at Ai. They know about the covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. They know about the Lord and his works and his church. And yet, having known what the Lord has done, what do they do? They fight him. And they fight him because they hate him. That's why people fight against the church, because they hate God in his church. Psalm 2 describes this in another way. Psalm 2, very similar kinds of language and thoughts you have in Joshua 9. It says, the nations are in uproar, and the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us tear apart their fetters and cast away their cords. A very similar picture in Psalm 2 and, and in Joshua 9. And it's because the nations hate God. They've seen his works, they understand his power, and they don't want a world in where this God acts and where this God has a church. You fast forward from Joshua 9 and Psalm 2, where do you see the next great picture in the Bible of the nations raging? Of course, the, the next great picture of the nations raging is at the cross of Jesus Christ, where you have Jews and Gentiles bonding together to rage against God and His Christ. And you ask yourself the next question, when is the next time that you see the nations bonding together against God and His church? That's the book of Acts. And what are they doing there? They are bonding together to wipe out Christ's church. And you ask yourself, when is the next picture of the nations bonding together and fighting against God and his church, and that's Revelation chapter 16. 
all of those confederacies of nations against the churches are all but pictures of what? The final climactic bonding together of the nations, and John describes it like this in Revelation 16, but he also describes the same event in 19 and 20. He says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. The Almighty. You see, we'd be to miss the entire flow of the biblical narrative to, to isolate Joshua 9 and see it as a simple instance of uh, geopolitics in Canaan. It would be to misunderstand chapter 9 to say that here the nations arming themselves against the Lord and his church was simply uh, uh, in, in, in a desire to protect and ensure their national security. That this bonding together of the nations here against God and against his church is all about Antichrist. This is all about Antichrist ganging up in the church before the consummation of the promises. (laughs) Ask yourself, where is Israel right now? Israel has crossed the river. They're in the promised land. They defeated Jericho and Ai. Chapter 9, we take a break. Chapter 10 and 11, what do you read in the rest of those chapters of Joshua? But Israel going south and sweeping through the southern part of Canaan and taking it. And then uh, Israel going north, sweeping north, and defeating all their opponents. By the time you get to chapter 12, it's just a summary of the battles. In other words, they are standing on the brink of consummation of the kingdom of God and its promises. Israel here, after these defeats, and now just prior to sweeping through the land to take it by a military conquest, is just on the brink of receiving the consummation of the promises. And you know who sees that just besides the kings who live on the other side of Jordan and the people who live in the hill country and the, and the kings in the law and the kings of all the coasts of the Great Sea? Do you know who sees that besides those kings? But Satan. Working through these kings begins to initiate conflict against the church and against his anointed and against God. Satan does not want a world where God and his church exist. So on one hand, you have the nations fighting by force against the church. And then on the other hand, when you come to Gibeon, you have the nations fighting with fraud. And that's the whole uh, sense we get here from Gibeon's ploy. Uh, Be very clear about this. Gibeon uh, is not full of a bunch of good-natured, soft-hearted, good old boy, country boy types of people. A Gibeon is full of people who are pagan, who are hostile to God, and who hate him and to hate his church. These are not good old boys. These are deceivers. These uh, Gibeonites practice the trade of Satan, which is deception. Look at what they do here. Uh, First of all, they use a phony ID in verse 6. 
It says, they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him, to the men of Israel, oh, we've come from a far country. They use a fake ID, first of all. They say, we've come from a far country. The fact of the matter is that they didn't have to jog more than about ten minutes to get to Gilgal from Gibeon. That's the fact. Second of all, they use false humility. Look at verse 8. We are your humble servants. Disarming Israel, thinking, uh, making them think that, that, that they're just a bunch of, of uh, good-natured, nice people who, who want nothing to do with battle and conflict. Uh, they're probably pacifists. They probably do sit-ins rather than, uh, than uh, enlist in the military, you follow. Th- these are the people who, who want uh, peace, not war, right? These are just diplomats. They're good, nice people who, who, if push comes to shove, won't push back. They'll just be your servants. They'll just get your water and cut your wood. False humility. And then notice they use a false profession of faith. Look at verses 9 and 10. They said, And they said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country. Why? Oh, because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the Sion, king of Heshbon, all king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. And you say, wow, what a credible profession of faith. They know Israel's God. They even call him famous. They're impressed with this God. Oh, he, he's a God who's been able to to take down the Amorites. So why is that a false profession then? It's true. Well, it's a false profession because of what they don't add to it. Notice what they do not add here, but yet they do know. There is not a word mentioned of crossing the Jordan. There is not a word mentioned of the destruction of Jericho. There is not a word mentioned of the destruction of Ai. There is not a word mentioned about the Covenant Renewal Treaty in Shechem, which they were painfully familiar with. It is the reason why they are getting up and making up this lie. You see, they are speaking in the name of the Lord. They are uh, regurgitating the talking points of the faithful, but they are, they are leaving a lot out. Oh, yes, so we've heard of your God. Famous guy. Got his autograph one time at the carnival. Yeah, they, they, they seem to be oh, just fine talking in religious terminology and language. There's no problem with that at all. It's just that they're leaving out the heart of the confession. You contrast this to Rahab, and you see it's a completely different confession, isn't it? Go back to chapter 2, for instance, and, and you see this. Uh, how Rahab recounts some of the same talking points as well. Uh, Joshua 2.9 says... I know the Lord has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to Sihanog, whom you utterly destroyed. Look at that. Same profession so far, isn't it? Now look at verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in you any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God. You see what Rahab did? You see what this prostitute did? She doesn't just know about God. 
she knows God. He's not just a God. He is God. That's what she says. She has a justifying faith. She doesn't know facts about God. She knows God. And the Word of God tells us that she was justified and demonstrated her justification by the things that she did. She did not deal deceitfully with God's people. She dealt deceitfully with the world, I'll grant you that. But she did not deal deceitfully with God's people. Her actions confirmed her confession. That is not the case here with our friends from Gibeon, are there? But these people here are using the terminology... To do what? To escape. You know, look at the motive. You see that in verse 3. When they heard of what Joshua had done, they left. What did they hear about? They heard about walls come tumbling down. They heard about men, women, and children being slaughtered. They heard about all the beasts and the living things being destroyed. They heard about basically nuclear warfare before there were nuclear weapons. That's what they heard of. And they were afraid and they said, that's what this God does to his opponents. And so what do they do? But they use this as an opportunity to escape the pain. They want the benefits. They just don't want the relationship. You know, that's how a lot of people are. That's how a lot of people are. In fact, something that's interested me uh, and fascinated uh, me, as I thought on it before, is the fact that uh, a good 90% or more of the people who walk down the aisle and give their life to Jesus at these big crusades, and there's been all kinds of research done on this, but over 90% of the people who walk forward and give their life to Jesus are nowhere to be found in a church of Jesus Christ mere months later. Why? Because they hear about the terrors of judgment. They hear about the consequences of sin. They hear about the concept of wrath. And they don't want it. They don't want God. I'm afraid that too many of our people are like that too. It's, it's sad. But it's... it's it's true, growing up in the church, I, I knew too often the case was, including myself, there are people who can manipulate the terminology. And they may even want some of the benefits of the covenant. But they don't want the God. They don't want the God. You see, that's what Gibeon was like. They wanted the benefits. Because they feared what God could do. But they didn't fear the Lord. You see, when people fear the Lord, they don't just fear what God can do. They fear what sin can do. And they hate it and they turn from sin. Gibeon does not do that. Gibeon, with a knowledge of the works of the Lord, does not come here and say, we surrender, not only to you, but to your God. And we want to do whatever it takes to know Him. No. They said, look at verse 12. They present phony evidence. This bread, when we took it, it was fresh. <clears throat> One of my favorite things to do on a Friday is to go to uh, 
Stater Brothers and buy stuff for barbecue. And one of the things that I love to buy when I go to Stater Brothers is not the steak. I love the steak, but something I really like is the bread. You know, when they bring that fresh bread out, the French bread, and, and, and it's hot to the touch. You can grab that package, and it's hot. And I always buy two because I know I'm going to eat one before I get home. <laughs> you follow? That's what people do. Uh, and that's what that's what give you that's what give you to say this bread was fresh, and we ate one of the loaves before we got here. But this bread now is stale and crusty and, and got mold on it. Does that sound like somebody who just jogged around the corner? Then they go verse thirteen. Look at these wine skins. Oh, they were new, but now they're torn. Our clothes and our sandals. They look like we just got them off the department store rack when we left home. But now, you couldn't even buy these at Goodwill. Phony evidence to seal the deal. They use a deception to enter into a false covenant with the church. And they knew what they were doing. That's satanic. When the false church enters into covenant with the true church using deception. That's Satan. It's not just that the six nations binding together in confederacy hate God and his church. It's that Gibeon hates God and his church and extorts a peace treaty with it. So it can infiltrate it at the same time to harm it. You want to read the book of Judges? You go look at what the book of Judges says. It's an absolutely depressing book. Why? Because cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle in Judges is that one generation feared the Lord, the next became lukewarm, and the third departed from the Lord, and they chased after the Asherahs and the Baal, and they followed pagan Canaanite worship. Why? Because there are Canaanites in the land after God conquered it. Scipionites and these remnants of Canaanites left over in the land are going to be a thorn in Israel's side for hundreds of years. That's what the false church does. It makes peace with the true church with deception and seeks to gradually kill it from the inside. The sad part of it is the church breaks covenant with God too. That's the rest of the story here. Now, first of all, we see the nations in league against God and his church, and, and we already know that's the way it's going to be. The word of God tells us that's the way it's going to be. We're not surprised by that. The nation uses, the nations use force and fraud to beat down the church. And what does the church do? It breaks covenant with the Lord. Look at verse 14. It says, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, and they did not ask for counsel of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I have that underlined in my Bible, and I put right next to it, key verse, because that's the key verse of this chapter. 
It's not the nations in enough for The key verse in this chapter is that the people of God did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's amazing because they just entered into this covenant just a few days before. And a part of that covenant renewal with Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God says to them, when you come into the land, God's going to clear away the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, you defeat them. You shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. Deuteronomy 7 is ringing in the ear, in their ears as the Gibeonites are standing on their front doorstep and Israel doesn't consult the word of the Lord. So what happens? Joshua said it right. They were deceived. He says that in verse 22. After they've made the covenant, after it's been found out that these are fraudulent people who are not from a far country, but are from around the corner, Joshua says, why have you deceived us? You see, Israel broke covenant with the Lord because they made covenant with the nations who they were not supposed to make covenant with. And they did that because they followed their emotions. They followed their common sense. They followed their desires. They followed the, the opinions of smart people, but didn't follow the word of God. When the authority of your actions is based merely upon what people say, you are in a terrible spot. God said, make no covenant. Israel, turn from the word of the Lord. You know, that's how you kill the church, right there. Is you find out what smart people say, you consult their expert opinion, and you follow their advice. And you turn a deaf ear to the word of the Lord. It wasn't just that the nations were ganging up, it's that the church ganged up on itself. A lot of lessons for us to learn from uh, this a chapter this morning, and the first one, I've already said it, it's obvious to, but I simply repeat it here, and that is, first of all, what we learn from this chapter, is that the world hates the church. The world hates the church. We need to be clear about this. It's not that the world is full of people who are neutral. It's not that the world is full of basically good people who, when asked about whether they want to be Christians, will simply say, well, you know what, that, that's not my brand of religion, but if that works for you, go for it. I, I'm fully in support of it. It's not like the church could care less. It's not like the world could care less. The world hates the church. I don't care how much they say they don't. They hate the church. And the world will use one of two tactics to kill the church. Force or fraud. You need to be aware of that. Because every generation of the church, we face either force or fraud. Go look at church history. You can't find a time when the church wasn't confronted with either or both. Satan is ruthlessly predictable. 
We need to be aware of his devices this morning, force and fraud. We need to lean on the word of God. When, when Satan uses the threat of force to kill the church, what is the church supposed to do? It's supposed to trust in the promises. And if the church has to die because it's trusting in the promises and because it realizes there is a life and a world that is better than this one, then that's what's going to have to happen. But we are not going to turn from the word of the Lord. We are not going to water down the promises. We are not going to change what God has said. You need to have that conviction this morning. You are not going to change. The word of God is the final authority. And if somebody wants to take that from you by fraud or by force, that's going to have to be the way it is. We will line up with a long line of martyrs. And we need to lean on the word when the world uses fraud and deception. We need the word of God to help us understand when we are being tricked and deceived. You know... Paul says that the word of God is inspired and is therefore profitable for what? For doctrine. If we don't know the doctrine of the word, we are open to the deception of the world. It also says it is profitable for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. If we don't understand the word, we are going to be tempted and ensnared and trapped by the world into sin. All the while the world promises there won't be any consequences. Secondly, what we learn from this chapter is that we leave ourselves wide open to deception when we do not lean on the word of God. We leave ourselves wide open to deception when we do not lean on the word of God. Joshua says it. I repeat it again. Verse 22. Why have you deceived us? That's the truth. We get deceived. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life this morning. But you can tell for yourself. You can take a simple test. Who do you listen to? First John 4, 6 says, He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. There's your test. You can take it for yourself in the privacy of your own home. Who do you listen to? Do you listen to your emotions? Are your emotions more profound than your knowledge of God's Word? Are your emotions more powerful? Are your desires more powerful than the Word of God? Is that what leads you? Is the opinion of trusted people... More acceptable to you than the Word of God. The Word of God will tell you. It will direct you. In doctrine and in righteousness. He who knows God listens to the Word. He who does not listen to the Word does not know God. Third, sin leads to curse and slavery, not liberty. Sin leads to curse and slavery, not liberty. Look at verse 23. Joshua's response to the Gibeonites is twofold. It's first of all, I'm not going to kill you. Although I could have this army line up right now and wipe out your city, I'm not going to do that because we made an oath before the Lord to be in a covenant 
of peace with you. But you will be our slaves. You came to us, humble pie, saying you're going to be our servants. And Joshua says, that's exactly what you will be from now till eternity. You will be our servants. And he says in verse 23, you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves. You see, sin promises the prospect of freedom. That's what it does. It always comes promising the prospect of freedom. And what it says is that God is restrictive. God's word is restrictive. God's word is limiting. And this way, Satan's way is the way of liberty, of self-pleasure, of delight, and no consequence. By the way, that sounds good to everybody, doesn't it? Who doesn't want guilt-free consequence-free living. Well, sin is not the path. Joshua's words are an admonition to us. If we pursue sin rather than repentance, this is what sin leads to. Curse and slavery. One last thing, consequences. That's what we learned from this chapter, is that there are consequences for sin that even believers have to bear. God did not let Joshua and the children of Israel off the hook. They entered into a covenant, and though it was under false pretenses, they swore an oath. And they are the ones that refuse to consult the word of the Lord. And they allow themselves to be deceived. And they will bear their consequences. That's the same thing here. Christians will continue to bear the consequences of their sin. Now thank God this morning that God forgives our sins. Thank God that he does. The wonderful message of the gospel is that no matter what sin you have committed against God, you can be forgiven of that sin by simply asking forgiveness through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God forgives horrendous sins. And I know that because I've read the Bible and I've read the kind of people that God's forgiven. Murderers, adulterers, homosexuals, blasphemers. Idolaters. The list goes on and on. God records all kinds of of sins that he forgives. It doesn't mean that they don't disfigure our lives. That's the admonition of our passage this morning. Yes, there is forgiveness. But sin always comes with its consequences. When you hurt somebody, it's going to take a while for them to be able to get close to you. They may forgive you, but it's going to take a while to get close again. You lie to somebody, it's going to take a while for them, though they may forgive you, to trust your word. You go down the list and you fill in your own blanks. Sin is going to have its consequences. The sad truth is that Too often people decide that if they're going to have to deal with the consequences of their sin, they might as well just keep the sin also, because at least they have the thing that gives them pleasure. So rather than turning to the Lord and seeking grace to deal with the difficulty that they've made in their life, they stay with their sins.
people of God, I, I don't know if that's what you're struggling with, but I'll tell you what. God's wrath will far outlive the pleasure you get from momentary sins. God's wrath will far outlive the momentary pleasure that you receive from your sin. And so I plead with you. To seek the Lord. He will forgive. And he will provide the grace to deal with it. You say, Pastor, that's a lot of negativity this morning. I was already having a bad day. And then you made it worse. See, isn't there any gospel in Joshua chapter 9? I hope we're all desperate for a little gospel now after hearing this very thorough working of the law and the the terror of the admonitions here. I I hope we're all saying, Lord, is there any gospel in Joshua 9? After all, there was gospel in Joshua 7. There was gospel in Joshua 7 when when Achan sinned and he brought all of Israel down with his sin and there was all kinds of problems. And and then they they stone Achan in the valley of Achor. And there was a lot of talk in that sermon about sin. But that sermon ended with gospel because God ended that with gospel. When he said he turned the valley of Achor into a door of hope. There was sin in Joshua 7. There was, there was gospel in Joshua 7. There was gospel in Joshua 8. When we saw that king strung up on the tree. So that's pointing forward to not only Israel's future under curse, but that points forward to the resolution, the way to get out of the curse, is that there would be a king who would die on a hill, who would be hung on a tree. And that was the king of kings and lord of lords, who took covenant curse upon himself to save his people. You see, isn't there gospel in Joshua 9? Well, as I've searched Joshua 9 long and hard, I can't find gospel. I find law. But you know what the law does? As it drives you to the gospel. The Joshua 9 is not the last chapter, chapter written in the Bible, is it? It's one chapter along the way to what? To the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you feel the force of the law, I hope that force of the law drives you to the cross. As you hear the admonition about the force and fraud that the nations will perpetrate against the church to overwhelm it, I hope that drives you to Christ. Find a refuge in Him. He says, all who come to Him, He will no wise cast out. He will not lose a single one whom the Father has given unto Him. When you hear... The admonition about failing to listen to the word of God, what kind of destruction that leads to, I hope that drives you to the word of God, and especially the promises, and you say, yes, I I know I'm going to break these more, I'm going to break them again and again and again, I know that! (laughs) But thank God that in that same word is also gospel. There's a message of forgiveness. You go down the list of the admonitions and the warnings we have in our passage this morning, all of those are designed to do what? To do what they should have done to those countries who decided to band together. Instead of making them bold and hardened in sin. Should have made them run to the cross. Let's do that together this morning. The gospel is the positive which answers all the negative of our passage. So I pray that these threatenings and admonitions for us this morning.
might be for all of us, as Paul says, a schoolmaster, which drives us to Christ. Let's pray.